0: that um nancy pelosi is you know for years the democrats have blamed everything on russia but this takes the cake like nancy pelosi was like we need to investigate the connection between russia and the anti-israel protests
1: yeah and then like a day later there were protesters outside her house and she's like go back to china (laughs) and so it's like she got the memo like the Russia thing was outdated. Yeah, she updated like, it. She's senile. She the woman is eighty one years old like it's like she's just replaying China, Russia. Yeah. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense actually like the one good
0: thing that um richard nixon ever said or did was he was like congress is way too old like these people should not be running the country
2: they're too old they're
3: too old you know what i mean i think you got i think the house in the senate you ought to be out of there by 70 because you know that's a murderous thing down there
1: to Cargo Co friends. I'm well, Amy so
0: home and I'm Michelle Greenstein.
1: Oh, we got a lot to get into ever since I got this Neuralink chip implanted in my brain.
0: Oh, you were the first patient?
1: Wow. I was, yeah.
0: Damn, I can't believe Elon Musk couldn't just tag you. You would have gotten so many followers.
1: Yeah. I've immediately been hacked and I'm <laughs>
0: You love transhumanism.
1: All I can talk about are migrants.
0: <laughs> transhumanism. What is it? How does it connect to these brain chip implants? Um, and uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about the fear of the singularity that drives a lot of these uh, transhumanist debates.
1: Yeah. So we're going to get a little philosophical in the final part of these this series
0: strap in sit down get ready
1: stand clear of the closing doors because mind the gap
0: open your mind and open your with the drill
1: (laughs) (laughs) but yeah oh my god i saw the there's a video circulating on twitter of somebody driving with the apple vision pro in a in a tesla cybertruck he was like typing midair while not steering
0: well you know as mark zuckerberg said move fast and break things so
1: i guess that's where we're headed move fast and crash cars it's gonna go from like what were your last words to like what was the last thing you swiped on
0: so if you've been living under a rock apple came out with It's new mixed reality headset, which we actually covered last year when information about the headset had leaked, but now it's actually available on the market. And it's mixed reality, which means it's kind of a combination of augmented reality and virtual reality, which means you can literally see. Losers walking down the street wearing it and like swiping with their hands and like making wild gestures or you might see them typing in midair. I do want someone to do like a super cut of people on the street typing and like uh, put some
1: like, you know, Beethoven um, concerto behind it or something. Yeah, it does look like they're playing piano a little. They're just playing air piano, but these people are really like doing work on the subway. Your one chance to not be working
0: yeah yes and then also of course because you need like the battery pack you are walking around with like this ugly ass cord on you hanging off your head at all times it's not a good look this might actually turn me into a transhumanist
1: because i would rather have some screens like embedded in my eyes than walk around with that monstrosity i mean this is the first step towards that it's just like wearing ski goggles on your way to work but yeah it was like one of those youtubers was like on a boosted skateboard wearing them and somebody was like is that even safe and he's like safety third i can't wait till he gets smashed into by a garbage truck
0: i did see a lot of people saying like if i see you in the street with this like it's on site like i'm gonna rip this off anyone's head that i see well it is $3,500.
1: so (laughs) it's a grand larceny charge (laughs) i don't know pants them tickle them there was somebody who was like it is great chopping onions with this thing (laughs)
0: Um, You can buy pre-cut onions for about the same price.
1: <laughs> $4,000. Yeah, you could hire somebody to chop those onions. Yeah, Anders wears goggles to chop onions because he's a pussy.
0: The irony is he's doing it to not be a pussy. He's doing it because he's so manly that he refuses to cry under any circumstances. By the way, speaking of um, vegetables, Siobhan texted me after that episode where we talked about cilantro and she said cilantro tasting like soap has been linked to parasites because cilantro is anti-parasitic
1: i'm gonna go to the fridge right now and eat (laughs) a bunch of cilantro it's really good for you parsley cilantro Thinking about making a parsley soup.
0: That could be good. Like a green soup, like a lot. Like you blanch it and then blend it. Potato. Potato, onion, garlic, peas maybe. I could see peas being good in there.
1: Not blended, but like individual peas. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I'll write it down. Anyways, moving forward. I think that's, that's the likely end of the Apple Vision Pro chapter because it doesn't seem advanced enough to really integrate with everyday life.
0: Yeah, I mean, not the first version, but I think the way this always goes is like, first, it's a really premium product, way too expensive for most people to buy right now. And then slowly you start to see people who are really into tech wear it. And then eventually it becomes more mainstream. It'll it'll probably get lighter. Like the Apple Vision Pro that we have out now, which is kind of cumbersome and heavy, is the worst Apple Vision Pro that we're ever going to have, and um, hopefully they never figure it out. You know?
1: Yeah, I agree. We are um, ideologically against the Apple Vision Pro. We've taken a stance <laughs> on this podcast.
0: So it's like we said on our last episode that we talked about the Apple Vision Pro, which, by the way, was before it actually came out, and this was back when we thought it was going to be called Apple Reality Vision or Reality Pro.
1: Oh, they, got, they dropped the reality from the name.
0: I think that was the right choice. Vision Pro sounds way cooler than Reality Pro. Also, reality invokes the idea of virtual reality, which is like a little fringe. In fact, they don't even want us to call this virtual reality at all. They want this to be known as spatial
1: computing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but what I was saying was, if anyone can get us to wear these fugly things, it's Apple
1: yeah one guy was on the subway and uh he was like am i being recorded now and he's like yeah there <laughs> he's like no thank you and then he's like enjoy i'm this is my stop enjoy your adventure yeah i saw that that's a casey nice video
0: i will always have a soft spot for him because he gave my ex-boyfriend his first job but he is a tech
1: oh really optimist yeah casey we're tech optimists too are we <laughs> We give the technology the benefit of the doubt, but
0: um, this is actually kind of related to our topic today because the Apple Vision Pro, you know, helps people merge the digital world with the physical world, right? Your fingers are the mouse, your brain not quite is the computer, but the computer is sitting on your head. Um, You know, the attachment is just the battery. The actual computer is on your head. Um, And another example of merging the digital world with the physical world is the news, which we kind of referenced up top, that the first human was given the
1: Neuralink brain chip there's been no kind of official statement from the company of Neuralink only Elon Musk tweeting which is
0: normal because like you don't you're if you just start a clinical trial of something like you shouldn't be posting about it but then also Elon Musk should also not be posting about it God his followers are so lame is there any way to program it to stop can you go down please
1: oh sorry I forgot that I was sharing.
0: Is there any way to program it to help recover from being a Democrat?
1: Oh my God, so lame.
0: But anyway, the first human was given the Neuralink brain computer
1: interface. Everybody's wondering the same question How did they get FDA approval? We've all heard about the dead monkeys, which may or may not have been as a result of the brain chip, but, you know, the the way that they, you know, crack their skulls open like egg, eggs to put those chips in. And former staff of Neuralink have come forward and talked about the rushed nature and, you know, just the vibes were off at the office. <laughs> so it's that's a question that's on everybody's mind. It's the obvious question to ask, right? How is this allowed to happen? There was even an Axios article that, was titled How Elon Musk's Neuralink Brain Chip Got Approval for a Human Trial. And I scroll down in the Axios article and it s- said so how did Neuralink get FDA approval? The FDA confirmed approval had been granted but told Axios it could not disclose any information about studies related to the device. Oh man, clickbait Axios. I was really excited there for a minute. So we decided to dig deeper, which is, you know, what we do. And we uh, found some answers. We suspect that the FDA commissioner, Robert Califf, might have something to do with it. Yeah, Robert Califf, um, the current head of the FDA. The
0: agency that's tasked with ensuring the safety and efficacy of medical devices and medications yes
1: here's what he looks like in a bow tie michelle does find him attractive
0: <laughs> i don't know if i i would say that but no If you look him up you see lots of of images with him in suits and bow ties and it's like yeah yeah whatever and then there's this one picture of him in a in a gray crew neck and i'm like oh <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh anyway <laughs> <laughs> okay. because he's an ideological counterpart or has opposing views that's why you find him sexy I think it's like I guess, whole... he's so forbidden yeah he's haram
0: but just a primer on the head of the FDA he started as a cardiologist from North Carolina who made a name for himself organizing and overseeing massive clinical trials in the
1: 90s He probably looks at Neuralink's monkey death Ratio and is like I've killed way more monkeys than that in my time. And by monkeys, I mean human beings.
0: I mean he does have kind of a southern drawl as well.
1: Never good from your heart, surgeon. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like curing a a female pilot, right? <laughs>
0: they are like, not you. <laughs> he was also FDA commissioner during Obama's second term. He entered the FDA as deputy commissioner for the FDA's medical products and tobacco division in 2015 first and then he
1: became the top g at the fda did so he's the guy who like got rid of jewel flavors did that happen they're definitely like going after jewel hard which is why i'm like sucking on this chinese elf bar is elf chinese i'm assuming you're like they're just short and fat (laughs) i feel like we don't also didn't mention that he's a doctor well i said he started as a cardiologist from north oh you did oh sorry missed that
0: while he was uh, in the Obama administration, he garnered criticism for being a corporate shill, for being a corporate sellout, specifically a big pharma shill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you saw a lot of headlines. Quote, does the FDA now belong to fig ph- big pharma? The FDA commissioner has deep ties with pharma. Quote, Califf's confirmation amounts to a handover of the agency to big pharma. So he he's it's his, his relationship with big pharma is very well documented. He was the chancellor of clinical and translational research at Duke. Duke, if you don't know, it's one of the largest biomedical research enterprises in the nation. Um, you know, was ranked third in terms of federal funding for medical La cross. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in 2021, for in terms of money from the NIH, and the NIH is the largest public funder of biomedical research, not just in the nation but in the world. Duke received money from a ton of drug companies. Um, Not only that, but the Duke Translational Medicine Institute, which Caliph headed, got between 50 and 60 percent of its hundreds of millions in annual research funding from the drug industry. That's according to his own estimates. You know, it's not uncommon, unfortunately, for, quote unquote, scientific research to be funded by industry in America. That's not something that he invented or anything, but not good to have that person who got all that money then turn around and become, you know, the top dog at the FDA, even Time magazine um, in their piece during the Obama administration, they, they ran a piece called Candidate to Lead FDA Has Close Ties to Big Pharma, wrote about how Caliph is, quote, seen by some as a threat to the independence and authority of the FDA, thanks to his views on the need to accelerate change and his deep financial and intellectual ties to the pharmaceutical and medical device industries. So even before he was confirmed in the Obama administration, we had people like, you know, Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin voting against him and citing the vast pharmaceutical financial obligations that Caleb had. They were basically pointing, again, to this concept of the revolving door uh, Mm. between the FDA and those private companies. He was like, oh,
1: hell no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
2: Dr. Caleb, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, as you know, you and I chatted uh, a while back, and I told you that I would not support your nomination because I believed you were not strong enough on the most important
0: strong enough
2: issue that the American people are concerned about with regard to prescription drugs. We pay by far the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs.
0: Wait, actually, I'm just putting it together now. This is 2015. He probably already in campaign mode. He's got that guts, though. Probably already knew he was going to be a fucking cuck to Clinton anyway. So whatever. He was a pharma shill. What's new? This is America, right? But it's interesting because whereas, as we said in the last episode, whereas the FDA's revolving door was pretty much about big pharma in the past, now it's also becoming intermingled with big tech because there's so much... Uh, yeah really tech these days.
1: yeah I'm really enjoying getting deep into biotech and that is like the this is the n- new hot thing for this next decade. I think everybody's oh, gonna right. be talking about biotech. We're gonna need to get a stat news subscription.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the next top thing for data collection, for sure, because we have monitored the outside world. It is it is extremely monitored. Right. And now what's left Our inner bodies. That's definitely a big part of it. Corporations finding ways to profit from new forms of data collection. In 2014, he gave a presentation uh, while he was chancellor of clinical and translational research at Duke to corporate executives, where he even put up a slide that like identified regulation as a barrier to quote unquote transformation uh in the area of developing mm-hmm. new, again medical devices and medicines which is what the FDA is supposed to regulate
1: yeah he's he's like always talking about R&D baby that's in yeah and his um back and forth with Bernie Sanders he doesn't even try to dispute that or say he's even gonna worry about prices at all he's just like r d is expensive you know <laughs> and it's just like just say uh, just say that you will there's nobody holding you to that just lie bernie sanders is like what are you gonna do about the prices i don't believe you are strong enough
0: but yeah so that was in the obama administration and then also in the Biden administration bernie opposed him again and he
2: was like all right we gotta do this again they gotta say like uh, why are you such a pharma show <laughs> dr calif as i'm sure you are aware the pharmaceutical industry is probably the most powerful special interest here in washington dc it has spent over four and a half billion dollars on lobbying and hundreds of millions of dollars in campaign contributions over the past 20 years and one of the major reasons uh, the pharmaceutical industry, among many others, is so powerful is its close relationship with, uh, with the uh, FDA and other regulators in Washington. Nine out of the last ten FDA commissioners went on to work for the pharmaceutical industry or to serve on a prescription drug company's board of directors. Unfortunately, uh, Dr. Califf, you are not the exception to that rule since you left the FDA in 2017 you have made several hundred thousand dollars from pharmaceutical companies and have received consulting fees from Merrick Biogen and Eli Lilly according to your financial disclosure form you own up you currently own up to eight million dollars in stock of major pharmaceutical companies
0: so he was a pharma shill, um, but he's also a deregulation whore um, mm-hmm. in 2018 while he was FDA commissioner, Calif did a talk at Google. And again, don't worry, we're going to talk about why Google is really relevant here. But he did a talk at Google talking about regulating medical devices that provide decision support to clinicians. And the interviewer is a representative of Google's health subsidiary, Verily. So let's see that clip.
4: Let's see the clip. Is this not an opportunity to sort of look at that as information that can help us make better decisions, that um, there is this concept of sort of pharmacovigilance, which is um, after a product, uh, pharmaceutical or medical device um, uh, gets released to the market, it's only then when we realize, you know, what is its true effect, because when you're doing the trial, it's hard to anticipate everything.
0: By the way, that is not when we should
1: realize it's true effect. We should realize it's true effect in the trials, but okay. Yeah, the thing is, like, if you're participating in a trial, you know you're in a trial. But if a drug is released by the FDA, you think it has a stamp of approval, and you think, like, oh, I'm not going to die. My head isn't going to bleed through my ears.
3: The need, the absolute need to regulate it, but to do so in a way that um, fostered, creativity and innovation and allow this industry to thrive. It starts with saying that for now, the FDA is not going to regulate decision support heavily. It's going to watch it with something that's called um, enforcement discretion. Not going to be heavily regulated, but I've predicted publicly, and I'll just say it again, there will be some catastrophes that will occur, and that's how we'll figure out what should be regulated. In the
0: it's really, yeah. <laughs> perspective on regulations is really epitomized by this quote. It's very big tech, right? It's very
1: move fast and break things. Yeah, it's like, but you're breaking people.
0: Um, There will be some catastrophes that will occur. And that's how we'll decide to regulate <laughs> the, the minutes leading up to that. He's basically saying like to slow innovation down before things get released to the public doesn't really make sense. Um, once things are released to the public, then we're going to get a lot of data. It's basically like, uh, you know, what's the saying?
1: Ask for forgiveness later.
0: Yes, Act ask first. for forgiveness instead of
1: permission. Yeah, ask for forgiveness from the families who just had their grandma's head explode. So like, Some catastrophes will occur. Um, yeah, like we saw with the Aduhelm case. This week, the same week that we're getting the Neuralink plopped into a human... An Alzheimer's drug, a very controversial Alzheimer's drug is coming off the market. This is called Aduhelm, made by this company, Biogen. Yeah, a company which, again, Robert Califf took money from. And this Alzheimer's drug was supposed to stop the development of the disease in very early Alzheimer's patients. And there's about 6 million people in the U.S. who are affected by Alzheimer's. And in the trials, they discovered that uh, this this medication made people's heads explode. No, I don't mean heads explode, but like one of the side effects was brain swelling and brain bleeding, you know, not exactly your indigestion side effect. When it got FDA approval, people were confused as to why it got FDA approval. And it also got approval for all Alzheimer's patients, even though it was a medication specifically set for early Alzheimer's patients. And then after it got FDA approval, like they also announced that it's going to cost $56,000 a year for the medication. But there was uh, an investigation into this. Stat News did a lot of investigative work. Um, what they discovered was that Biogen executives had hundred and fifteen meetings with top brass at the fda which they're not even supposed to be talking at all so we see that there's something going on something is rotten at the fda that alzheimer's drug opened a lot of eyes and turned a lot of heads you know yeah
0: and swelled a lot of heads <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. exploded heads <laughs> Like, I guess since this guy's a cardiologist, he's like, yeah, do whatever you want with the old noggin. Ah. <laughs> as long as your heart is pumping, maybe he's like a little more cautious when it comes to like heart technology. Who knows?
0: Yeah, imagine, like, I imagine uh, the different wings of the hospital, they're like very competitive, like, f- those f- heart doctors, brain forever. The heart doctors are like, brain can suck the f- out of my f-. heart's the one that keeps the body alive. And the brain's like, You'd be fucking nothing without us. So I don't know why the doctor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All these doctors are from New Jersey.
0: Anyway. The point about regulation is really key. When we talk about transhumanism, brain chips and, and all of this, like, you know, injecting technology into the human body, there's a large part of that conversation that focuses on the conspiracy of microchips being in the COVID vaccine. I think this Mm -hmm. is something we need to talk about because where COVID is
1: going to tell us it's really in the vaccine.
0: (laughs) No, I I don't think there's any evidence that there was a microchip in a vaccine. But where COVID is an important part of this story is all of the deregulation that happened that was justified by the pandemic.
3: Needless to say, the COVID, um, you know, the pandemic has accelerated all those trends. Um, and made it so that it's likely to be easier to deploy these kinds of technologies in the future because a lot of what was holding it back was um, regulation um, to um, not give away the turf of um, digitization. But I think think we'll never go back to the way it was.
0: We had a lot of changes to federal regulations because of COVID. And that's how this transhumanist technology is going to get pushed through because of all the deregulation mm-hmm. that happened in that era. And that's still yeah. Happens.
1: there's no longer like a revolving door. It's just like a bead just... curtain <laughs> they're passing through.
0: Wait, that's so funny. I'm off to K-Straight. It's really funny. <laughs> but anyway, I just feel like we had to bring up the, the vaccine micro- microchip thing because the conversation around transhumanism. Um, has been so dominated with the idea of the vaccine microchip. And if that's something that can so easily be dismissed and derided as a conspiracy theory, but then the real transhumanist technologies that that people are actually developing and that, you know, very powerful people are talking about, that agenda
1: goes completely underreported. There is something to fear with how quickly any regulatory hurdles were totally stripped during the pandemic era.
0: Yeah, which is why it's important to look at, what's his name, Caliph. As a deregulation whore, if there's someone that's gonna, you know, rein in big tech in this regard, it would be the head of the FDA, and then you have the head of the FDA completely in lockstep with big tech.
4: Thank you all for coming out to meet uh, Rob Killiff. Uh, former FDA Commissioner under President Obama and Verily Science Advisor, I'm Paul Varghese, the clinical lead for Health Informatics for Verily Life Sciences. For those of you who may not be familiar with Verily, we are a offshoot of Google X. We've been around since 2015, and our mission is really closely aligned with what Google has. We would like to make the world's healthcare information accessible and useful. Just collect information, organize it, and then make it actionable. And uh, with me is Robert Califf, who's one of our Verily Science Advisors. You have been on the government side, you've been on the clinical side. Uh, what is it about coming over to the technology uh, era or technology sector that you found appealing? Uh,
3: the answer is because, obviously, uh, to me, the technology sphere is taking off now and has a huge amount of money. So, what I would hope to do is to bring these worlds together because. Um, the traditional healthcare sphere needs better technology and, you know, amazing things are possible. I'm trying to keep a foot in each side of the equation.
0: There's another interesting uh, soundbite in that interview where he talks about how he's very interested in this idea of the fourth industrial revolution, which is a school of thought put forward by the World Economic Forum that basically advocates for the merger of the biological the physical and the digital uh, worlds into a single sphere.
3: Davos, I went this year and said, you know, it's where millionaires tell billionaires what the middle class is like, but um, one of the themes there is this fourth industrial revolution, which I think is very real, you know, the first was water power, the second was electricity, the third was um, information technology, we're just recovering from that Revolution. Now we've got the fourth, which is the uh, merger of biological, physical, and information sciences into a single sphere. It's dramatic, and it's, it has profound consequences for um, our country and for people all over the world.
0: Not only did he go to Davos, but he went around the revolving door. Like, I don't know if we mentioned this yet, Robert Califf, after working at the FDA not working at, after heading the FDA at the Obama administration, left in 2017 to join Google. He was both a senior advisor at Google mm-hmm. Health and at Verily Life Sciences. These
1: are both two divisions of Google's parent company, Alphabet. Which, uh, this was news to me that Google even had a a health department. Wasn't that WebMD? <laughs> uh, yeah, not to be confused with Googling your health. <laughs> <Also known laughs>
0: WebMD. And by the way, Caliph was already serving as an advisor at Verily uh, while he was the FDA commissioner. So it's just the bead curtain is like
1: so <laughs> yeah, it's falling down.
0: Yeah, like the beads are from Amazon.
1: Yeah, you'd think you'd have to like give up your, that job. But no,
0: it's so good. I love it. It's so good. I love <laughs> the merger of big tech and the government. It's so, so good for humanity. And and they even talk in that interview He's asked about the accessibility of data. You know, should consumers have their data? And he's basically like, no, humans are stupid. So <laughs> they're not going to know what to do with their data. But we do. We, we know best. The but,
1: he, the, but then he said, but you should have your, he was talking specifically about your genetic charts. You like, but you should have your charts. even though yeah. like humans are dumb. They don't want to know what to do with it, but they should have access. I disagree. He was saying humans are dumb. They shouldn't have access to it, but you should have access
0: to it. And he pointed to the interviewer. So he was saying most people are dumb. He said people don't read beyond a second grade reading level. But then talking to the interviewer who was a doctor, he was saying, but
1: people like you should have it. Oh, really? I read that as like legally you should have it but there's a problem that people are dumb.
0: Well, let's see, maybe I'm wrong. We will settle
1: this.
4: You touched on the role of uh, what we do with people's data. And so one of the promises, or one of the potential promises is that as we do better data collection, that we have the advantage of technology being fairly ubiquitous, that we have sensors um, that we're all carrying, um, their smartphones. Uh, We're gathering information. Can you talk a little bit about where you see how we empower people to get that information? Can you share where you think um, the obligation is to getting that information back to the patient? And do we not run the risk of overwhelming people? Um, More information is not
3: necessarily easier to manage. Uh, A lot of wisdom in what you just said. We've also got to look at the cognitive capabilities of the population, a very high proportion of Americans, something like 15%, can't read above a second grade level. So the idea that we're going to empower people by giving them like their genome in that circumstance is just it just doesn't make sense. On the other hand, you should get your genome. So I think one of the
1: I still kind of think No, I think he's like, what are they going to do with it? I think he's gesturing towards the interviewer no i think he's saying you in general for i don't think and the point he's making is that what are these people gonna do with genetic information like are they I understand they're not gonna do anything
0: good but this doctor will he's talking about fitbits and uh mm-hmm. phone sensors and all that information being collected no he's
1: talking about genome he's talking about no, like full genetic
0: i know but he he did a he did a funny thing there He's talking about health information in general, and then he's bringing up the idea of a genome because it's the like most complex thing where it's like, of course, the average Joe wouldn't get it. But the question Mm -hmm. and the beginning of his answer is about all the data about your personal health who should have it and he's saying no it should stay at Google because Google knows how to make sense of it but the average person doesn't know how to make decisions based on that because people are stupid
1: no the interviewer was asking so now that we have this information everybody's life is going to be improved because they'll be able to see the information he's like yeah I don't think health outcomes are going to be better just because these people have information the interviewer was saying should we give the data
0: that google has to the people themselves or do we run the risk of overwhelming them because they don't really know what to do with that information anyway and he's saying there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said okay which is what google's doing google doesn't give you your personal
1: data on anything yeah but when i guess when it comes to medical data it's you'd think you'd think
3: our people by giving them like their genome
1: like their genome In that
3: circumstances just it just doesn't make sense on the other hand you should get your genome so i
1: don't know you no i, I think he's saying that. you in general why That's would nice. he gesture his hand like that to him he's saying like you as in every person oh no, it's not what he's saying i'm sorry i don't see it <sighs> agree to I'm disagree sorry. but i'm right
0: so yeah robert killiff um, has a revolving door component to him. What's new? Institutions are corrupt in, in the United States. Yawn, right? This is what you're saying as you're listening to this right now. And we're going to agree to disagree about that particular soundbite. We're not going to know what was in his head, but honestly, it doesn't really matter. It's just a funny thing. It doesn't change the larger point, which is that Caliph is a corporate shill. He has a demonstrated past of not putting... And again, it sounds silly to say this now because we're so we're so familiar with the idea that our federal institutions are corrupt. But like you got to remember that actually the head of the FDA, his only concern is supposed to be the health and safety of the American people. That should be his primary professional concern. Right. He's not supposed to be thinking about AI and technological innovation. Yeah. Rubbing shoulders with people from Google and also cashing checks from Google. He's not supposed to be, you know, helping industry thrive. Crazy idea. I know. It goes to this point of uh, private influence on what are supposed to be public institutions, right? With Califf, we're talking about big pharma and big tech because it's the FDA. This is obviously not just an issue with the FDA, right? But, you know, when you have something that's so transformative, like a brain-computer interface, like a brain chip that is going to have all the potential uses that we talked about in part one of this show, you really want someone who is a little more cautious. Yeah, you don't want someone who is championing this idea of the public-private partnership at every chance he has. You want someone who's actually just thinking about public good. Um, you don't yeah. want someone who is talking about, you know, how industry and, and government need to collab more. Like, we need someone at the top of the FDA who is not an ex-Google Health executive. Not someone who's just going <laughs> to rubber stamp the transhumanism stuff. We need, like, a real public servant, which, like, do they even exist anymore
1: in America? I don't know. So how Elon Musk's Neuralink brain chip company got FDA approval, we think it has to do a lot with Caleb's personal beliefs, his affinity to transhumanism. He's, he's ultimately a, a product of Silicon Valley and he's very close to these tech companies. He does have that same kind of ethos. So like, why not just test on everyone? Why not just throw a medication at people if they, they're gonna think it's safe, so they use it and we'll get all of this data. And in the end, it is about gathering data.
0: And this has to do with the idea of transhumanism. Transhumanism. Okay, so transhumanism basically is the belief that human beings can evolve by the means of science and technology. It's really a movement that advocates using these technologies to make us better than we are. Something post-human. And we need to augment our human bodies in order to turn into this enhanced species, this post-human species.
1: Yeah, we're not just talking about BBLs <laughs> and silicone tits.
0: <laughs> silicone Valley. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um, so now as a human race, we're not just talking about modifying our external environments which is famously something that the human race um, does. Now we're talking about modifying our internal environments.
1: Yeah, it's the trans that the right-wing extremists can get behind. (laughs) There's definitely a faction of the right-wing extremists
0: that aren't with it, probably from a religious perspective, because it's like, you know, don't fuck with... God's creation, but there's also a big segment of the right that fucks with it because of figures like Elon Musk.
5: So Neuralink, at first, will solve a lot of brain-related diseases. So uh, it could be anything from like autism, schizophrenia, and then ultimately, it's intended to address the the risk, the existential risk associated with uh, digital superintelligence. Um, Like we will not be able to be smarter than a, a, a digital supercomputer. Um, so therefore, if you cannot beat him, join them.
0: But before there was Elon Musk, who wanted to merge the human brain with AI, there were many others who wanted to merge man and machine. Yeah. Okay, so where did the ideas of transhumanism come from? Where did this movement begin?
1: Well, let's talk about this nice upper-class gentleman that you might have heard of before. So the father, the guy who coined the term, Julian Huxley... Huxley, you might find that name a little bit familiar because he is the brother of Aldous Huxley. Oh, yeah. Aldous Huxley, if you've read Brave New World, really shows a dystopian future where technology is used to create the worst kind of social control that really just reduces humans to cogs and you only like feel when you go to the movies or feelies is what they're called and you take a pill to feel happy and and it really shows the ugly side of when technology is totally harnessed and centralized by a small elite and how they can use it to control an entire society. Aldous Huxley's novel of 1932, Brave New World, imagined a perfect world of peace and stability, engineered through pleasure, consumerism, and the rigid class hierarchy required to sustain it. We see in action how people can be trained to love their oppression and thrive on the very technology that turns off their thinking. Huxley's goal is to open readers' minds to issues that will make free societies vulnerable to the machinations of power-seeking leaders. It was a very bleak and grim picture he was painting in Brave New World, but Julian Huxley had a totally different optimistic view. It it could almost, Brave New World, um, I've seen it said, could almost be seen as like a a letter from one brother to another like his critique of it of like humans like unable to be creative and unable to feel and it was the maximum social control you can achieve with technology that's what he was imagining like when you say inability to feel and like you know non-human and all that that reminds me of this
0: elon musk interview that i watched where he was talking to i think it was lex friedman who's talking about how um there's a part of the brain that uh controls like physical like human urges and he was talking about how like that's actually like um really unnecessary like we don't need that because like humans uh do so much ultimately because of sex because of the way we're wired and he was talking about how like we shouldn't have to do that anymore if you're not having sex to procreate sex is pointless
5: a massive amount of thinking like truly stupendous amount of thinking has gone into sex yeah. without purpose, without procreation, without procreation, which is actually quite a silly action in the absence of procreation. It, it's a bit silly.
1: Well, so why are you doing it? Because it everything... makes the
5: limbic system happy. That's why. That's why. But it's pretty absurd, really. But, no. but I mean, this is a lot of computation has gone into, how can I do more of that <laughs> with procreation not even being a factor?
0: So it's interesting because it's kind of like these same ideas of like, oh, our human brains are actually flawed and we can improve upon them.
1: Yeah, I think that's like the image he's trying to project. Like he's definitely having sex parties. And yeah, there was a rumor going around that he has like a vibrator chip inserted into his penis. Like the guy's for sure having fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think he's ideologically consistent, but his point there was that like human brains do stuff that isn't logical. And he's talking about this in the context of Neuralink and in the context of creating a digital layer of intelligence on top of the limbic system and the cortex. And he, and he's saying the limbic system basically controls too much of human behavior and we can improve upon that. And yeah, he might be sleeping around but back to Huxley, another guy who was also sleeping around. In fact, he kind of invented sleeping around um, in like the 1920s, 30s. He wanted a open marriage and um, he wanted uh, freedom from, quote, the conventional bonds of marriage, according to his wife at the time. But whatever, that's not important. What is important, <laughs> uh, let's get this out of the way, um, is that he was a eugenicist. Uh-oh. Surprise, surprise. Julian Huxley was the head of the British Eugenics Society from 1959 to 1962. And, you know, eugenics, you know, was always an upper class, like elite ideology. It started with the upper class in 19th century England. And there are many examples of uh, U.S. eugenicists. Um, just to name one there was the rockefeller institute researcher who spent world war ii developing chemicals for the u.s army and he called puerto ricans dirty and thievish and then gave them cancer deliberately to kill them look it up look up the letter he wrote while stationed in puerto rico um but here's a quote from uh, huxley's 1975 essay up until now human life has generally been as Hobbes described it nasty brutish and short the great majority of human beings, if they have not already died young, have been afflicted with misery. The human species can, if it wishes, transcend itself, not just sporadically, an individual here
1: in one way, an individual there in another way, but in its entirety as humanity. It, w- it was kind of interesting, though, reading that like he really believed that his family had a physical defect because he was depressive and had... Yeah, uh, nervous breakdowns all the time and he was like i'm defective i shouldn't procreate really either
0: yeah i mean basically like this one incel is gonna ruin humanity for everyone just because he couldn't get over the fact that he wasn't like this the platonic ideal of a human being with no problems
1: yeah it's basically like hitler
0: Yeah, I mean, you guys would go back in time to kill baby Hitler. I would go back in time to give Julian Huxley a slap on the face. Yeah, some (laughs) self-esteem. I would go back to fuck him when it turned into such a sad, depressed loser.
1: Yeah, so one of the common underpinnings of eugenics or something that Huxley said, but also something that a lot of eugenicists echoed was that like, well, we breed agricultural stocks or we breed uh you know cattle why not humans why not apply the same concept to the human stocks which reminded me actually of uh this article that came out this week that was like uh understanding the middle east through the animal kingdom did you see that no what the hell thomas friedman uh, oh my god you didn't see this of course it was thomas friedman let's hear it uh understanding the middle east through the animal kingdom is there a better description of lebanon yemen syria and iraq today yeah cattle yes the cattle- there is <laughs> yes i don't even need to read the article yes they yeah never mind the danger in dehumanizing another population but he just goes out and says it. it's really beautiful how unaware this guy is okay uh the islamic revolutionary guard is the wasp the houthis hezbollah hamas are the eggs that hatch in the host lebanon yemen syria and iraq and eat it from the inside out uh we have no strategy that safely and efficiently kills the wasp without setting fire to the whole jungle um what better way to solve the middle east crisis than likening arabs to insects than to break (laughs) all boundaries of what
0: we thought racism in the media could look like
1: Uh, you're like oh my god
0: wow there's really a lot to unpack there but i think we should just throw away the whole suitcase yeah (laughs) and move on
1: yes just moving on, fun but fun. it it did remind me when when you make yeah. those kind of gross analogies to you know humans, if we are just like animals, this is this is the result of that. It's dehumanization.
0: Speaking of dehumanization, Nazi eugenics, you know, started with sterilization. Only they sterilized more than four hundred thousand people against their will through surgery. Also, thousands more died from, you know, the complications of these four surgeries. Um, but even though they started with sterilization, they soon moved on to murder. And they started with killing the individuals that they deemed disabled, defective and again, it was subjective. Um, so yeah, like first it was forceful sterilization, and then it was killing disabled people, and then it was killing non-disabled people. As as you might know, you guys have heard of the Nazis, right? And you know, <laughs> no one's saying Neuralink is is gonna kill disabled people, even even though it might by accident. And so we have no idea what the long term effects are gonna be of of putting a computer in the brain. But um, let's put it this way: Neuralink is not aiming to kill disabled people, right? They're just saying we're gonna fix them. We're not killing anyone. It's the good eugenics. It's the good transhumanism, right? Um, But once you open the door to quote unquote fixing disabled people, you may start fixing other things. Um, You may start fixing psychiatric conditions. And once you start fixing the really severe ones, you might want to start fixing the minor ones. And then you might move into the area of really subjective things where it's actually not a life-threatening illness. It's just a matter of personal preference. And then the question becomes, whose personal preference are we as a society acting on?
1: But I think it's important to talk about how the eugenics field kind of evolved over the 20th century a little bit due to the uh, events of world war Two,
0: <laughs> they might have had what you might call a a slight pr
1: crisis <laughs> the eugenics- <laughs> so there was a whole eugenics branding crisis after world war Two. they were like whoa we meant sterilize poor people not kill like that doesn't make sense so they um there was um injected into eugenics into the eugenics movement were were these ideas about okay well we were talking about sterilization before maybe we should talk about voluntary sterilization (laughs) so they were they were trying to make you know uh birth control more available to poorer neighborhoods which you know i think is important i think you know it should be available to everybody but that became a big part of eugenics post World War II.
0: Yeah, I mean the Germans didn't invent eugenics like it we got to talk about US eugenics too, I guess. Like the idea that society should eliminate people based on a real or perceived disability goes beyond Nazi Germany um it was Born in the U.S. No, not really. It was born in Britain, but it was uh, expanded in the U.S. There were mad laws allowing states to sterilize people that they deemed unfit. In fact, California eugenicists were sending their promotional literature on eugenics and sterilization uh, overseas to Germany, to, to German scientists and doctors. So, you know, the US, specifically California, low key did it first. They did forceful sterilization first. California was like by far the hardest core. In fact, by 1933, California had subjected more people to forceful sterilization than all other US states combined. And this is literally what inspired the Nazi engineered forced sterilization program. So, I guess we could say the US did it first, but Germany did it better, <laughs> period. Anyway, the main point is that only after the eugenics movement was well established in England and the U.S. did it spread to Germany. Uh, So transhumanism's roots do go back to this kind of like eugenicist
1: history. Um, very recent history, by the way. This is not ancient history, right? And it makes sense because you think about like gene therapy, that kind of medicine they want to promote. The eugenicists had the same idea, though. Transhumanists are, you know, taking on. They just they just changed the name from eugenics to transhumanism.
0: Yeah, pretty much. I mean,
1: it's, much has been said about
0: how transhumanism is the new eugenics is, is eugenics by another name. It's like the, the polite form, if you will, of eugenics. Like in, in 1946, which first of all, way too soon. <laughs> Hitler had just died like a year ago. Like, or did he? <laughs> oh yeah. You a Hitler. Well. No, I'm not a
1: truther. <laughs> I think he really died.
0: <laughs> um, in 1946, Julian Huxley wrote about what he calls like scientific humanism, right? And um, I did read the 60-page manifesto. Oh, no. Fortunately. <laughs> um, oh, it. no. Fuck, should I? Okay. He wrote, quote, our first tap- Just do
1: your favorites.
0: <laughs> I did. Well, I'm not reading 60 pages. These are the select. Okay. Mm. So in this thing, this is the founding document of UNESCO, right? And he's like, what are we going to do as UNESCO? And it's a good lens for us to see his ideas as a man more generally, right? And the organization's purpose, he says, is to drive human progress and drive human evolution. He says, quote, our first task must be to clarify the notion of desirable and undesirable directions in evolution. This is how we can, quote, define human progress, he says. So he separates this into three sectors of evolution, um, the lifeless, the biological, and the social. Lifeless is basically, you know, like the cosmos, biological is, you know, out of surface of the earth like plants animals whatever and then social is human so in the social or in the human sector right what does evolution look like well it's in the form of society it, it's in the form of tools and machines he says that man's quote innate mental powers could quote certainly be improved further by deliberate eugenic deliberate eugenic measures this is what he thinks we should do another one of his ideas that, you know, it's very, I guess you could say, elitist um, is that he's like, you know, we got to think about quality over quantity. And what does that mean to him? UNESCO must, quote, guard itself against the tendency of reducing everything to quantitative terms, as if counting heads were more important than what was going on inside them. Raising the general welfare of the common man really shouldn't be our focus it should really be to raise the highest level attainable by man right so not about raising like kind of everyone's i don't know living standard level of happiness level of fulfillment um whatever it's more about trying to you know innovate ways that we could raise quote the upper levels of these limits and embark man upon new possibilities it's very common among you know people in the, I guess, upper class, whatever. This is the same thing with Elon Musk, right? Like, he's not giving away any of his money to the millions of people who are living in poverty, even though that money, he would not even feel it, you know, missing from his pockets. But instead, it's all about, like, oh, we gotta merge man and machine. We gotta go to Mars. We gotta build new civilizations. Like, it's all about, like, nebulous ideas of, quote-unquote, progress. So to Huxley, quote, encouragement of variety of genius must be a major aim, um, however incomprehensible to the multitude. Even though the regular Joe is not gonna really be helped or even impressed by our work, that's what our work uh, should keep as a primary focus. Okay, the next point that I think is really important in reading this paper, again, keeping in mind that he, he uh, pioneered the concept of transhumanism, the distinction he makes between quote, mere difference and quote, difference in quality of level, right? So there's, he says like, there's a lot of, there's different types of inequalities, right? There's the inequality of mere difference, which is that, okay, some are white, some are black, some are tall, some are short, some are fat, some are thin. And he calls this mere difference. This is just, you know, I mean, I guess we would call it diversity now, whatever. And then he says, but there's another type and that is, the kind that we should be fixing right so people who are strong weak healthy versus quote chronic invalids people who live long versus people who live short lives people who are kind versus people who are cruel and selfish he goes on right quote the two types of inequality have quite different and indeed contrary eugenic implications the inequality of mere difference is desirable. But then the other one, we should get rid of, right? We only want strong, we don't want weak. We only want healthy, we don't want sick. We only want long-lived people, we don't want short-lived people. We only want kind people, we don't want selfish people. And he says, quote, even though it's quite true that any radical eugenic policy will be for many years politically and psychologically impossible, it will be important for UNESCO to see that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake, so that much that is now unthinkable... Because of the Nazis may at least become thinkable. So in summary, we gotta do eugenics, right? We gotta make eugenics great again. So Julian Huxley was like very, you know, influential during this time. Um, even, you know, before Hitler died, right? Mm-hmm. Um Julian Huxley gave a lecture at the Galton Institute, which shadowy organization. Yeah. I'm not, not even chat out in the open. This was eugenics
1: is like. Yeah, it's a respected field for for most of the twentieth century and then we have to sugarcoat it with like, oh, we're gonna be cyborgs. (laughs) And you know, it's not racism. (laughs) We're gonna be computers.
0: Yeah, we're just talking about bettering the human race. Um so in nineteen thirty six uh Huxley gave a lecture at Galton and a paper that summarized that lecture said quote Eugenics is destined to become part of the religion of the future or of whatever complex of sentiments which may then take the place of organized religion. But before it can become a soul-compelling ideal, it must first achieve
1: precision and efficiency as a branch of applied science. And Huxley is coming out of, he's, he's like a zoologist. That's his background. So he's studying, and he was studying evolution. His dad was, his dad was like a major defender of Charles Darwin uh, famously debated uh, Wilberforce, the, a priest who was famous during the abolitionist movement um, about evolution. And so they're coming from, they're like, well, let's just take Darwin's ideas and run with it.
0: Yeah, we forget that like uh, Darwinism wasn't like now it's kind of just like accepted and taught in schools as, as the law of the land but like back then it was a theory by a yeah. guy who was alive that and it, was, it was
1: yeah and it was like a little gross like nobody was people people right. didn't want to believe that men were monkeys you know they were like right. oh we're not we're not apes we're different and yeah it was very controversial yeah and yeah you got the you got the whole genesis telling a different story you gotta figure that out (laughs) i don't Um, know yeah in hebrew school one of the rabbis was like they didn't say how long a day was in Genesis. Oh, I got that
0: too. I got oh, that. Oh yeah, too. yeah. I think, I think that's sure. probably Talmud. It's like a way of telling the story to humans. Like, oh, the only way a human can understand it is in terms of a day. But like, actually, there was no such thing as a day because he was just creating the sun and stars for the first time. Yada yada yada. Um,
1: yada yada yada. That's Hebrew for. uh, <laughs> You know what I mean.
0: <laughs> but anyway, so H- Huxley. Um stresses repeatedly in in these essays articles lectures right um that the world is overpopulated and that population growth needs to be halted right this is a very common theme with eugenicists they're they're afraid of overpopulation this is the big existential thing and like obviously if you if you investigate it a little further what are they afraid of they're not they're afraid of black and brown people he acknowledges that eugenics is a borderline subject right now right he says it's been quote on the borderline between the scientific and the unscientific constantly in danger of becoming a pseudoscience Mm -hmm. right but he says quote it is however essential that eugenics be brought entirely within the borders of science so essentially he's advocating for what he calls this truly scientific eugenics not the shitty kind not the pseudoscientific kind that the nazis did So Huxley and his ilk were like, we can't let people be worried about Nazi eugenics. We need to separate ourselves from that. My eugenics is just about improving the species, making sure the good families breed. I'm not going to kill nobody. Don't worry. Don't
6: worry. I'm not going to do what
1: everyone thinks I'm going to do.
0: Whatever. There's a whole, you know, long history of eugenics that we're not going to be able to cover today. But. With regards to huxley um he commonly talked about things like race
1: hygiene pre pre pre-world war ii huxley post-world war ii huxley he amended a a bunch of things yeah he's a
0: totally different guy but what i'm saying is what i'm saying is um that amendment or whatever
1: i mean we could say it's someone getting older mature evolved (laughs) he became a prominent critic of race science and said there's no valid basis for assessing the genetic component of individuals intelligence or temperament as long as they come from unequal social backgrounds so he was trying to divorce the understanding of like being stupid to your genetics
0: but um he he specifically talks about how we need to brand rebrand eugenics and and make what was once unthinkable thinkable again in that uh 1946 Uh, paper that he did Mm -hmm. with the founding document of UNESCO so he basically says UNESCO can't base its outlook on you know any particular theology like any of the competing theologies like Islam, Roman Catholicism Protestant Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, Hinduism, anything, because it's going to alienate people, right? It's going to incur the, quote, active hostility of large and influential groups. His point is that we need everyone to be on board with our vibes. Um, It's not necessarily a religious point he's making. It's a strategic point. And the same goes for political economic doctrines. We can't base our outlook or our explicit strategies on you know, capitalism or Marxism. Same for philosophy. He says we can't base our outlook on rationalism, existentialism, whatever. We need to do something that will appeal to everyone on earth. And then he says UNESCO also can't be associated with racialism. Our constitution has to repudiate any belief in superior or inferior races, nations, ethnic groups, right? So it's all part of this larger point he's making about how strategically UNESCO can't be seen to be in one of these camps because we need to appeal to everyone. So what is UNESCO's approach going to be for him? He thinks it's necessary for UNESCO to adopt an evolutionary approach, right? That UNESCO's outlook must be based on what he calls scientific humanism, kind of building on Darwin's ideas. By the way, he... Later in the paper talks about how he believes that uh, militaristic nationalism, you know, like Nazis, um, was basically founded on a misconception of Darwinian principles. It's not the true, it's not the true essence of Darwinian principles. Anyway, um, he's, he's the kind of guy that's like, we need to... Uh, stop these undesirable traits from reproducing like people can have you know hereditary defects and ailments and you know there's a way for us to stop this as a human race and you know it's 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 kind of dramatic and radical um but then if you think about like kind of the conversation around the transhumanism technologies today where it 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 becomes very easy to actually justify it when you think about someone with a terminal illness
1: or an irreversible disease right yeah, you're selling me on it when you're like, no more AIDS. I'm like, cool. Sounds good. <laughs> Stick me w- with your chip. You
0: know? It raises the question, of course, of which characteristics are we talking about? Like, which characteristics do we, w- we want to discard, as-, as Julian Huxley would put it? And who decides, right? So that's Huxley, um, the former head of the
1: British Eugenics Society. <laughs> yeah. It's like, have you guys heard of eugenics? It's that what else do you need but now the focus shifted from undesirable traits to death being the most undesirable trait of them all you know and they yeah
0: mortality is definitely the most like I guess exciting example of something that we could quote unquote beat through technology
1: <laughs> there's like a cryogenic um uh oh, I forgot the name of the company but they Uh, they offer like full body cryogenics but then they also offer we can just for $80,000 we can cut off your head and just freeze that and maybe by the time you're defrosted there'll be a little machine to stick to plug your head into I'm like does anybody have a promo code I guess like if if I get like a bionic body, like could we make the boobs bigger on on the new body? I've said this before, but I want to freeze my tits. <laughs> I I should have froze them already. All things must fall. <laughs> All empires must fall. <laughs> as well as nipples, <laughs> my nipple is like the American Empire.
0: So anyway, that's where the idea of transhumanism was born um, with Julian Huxley that's where the term comes from. Even though it sounds futuristic, it's actually mad archaic and regressive and retarded. And I don't mean retarded in an offensive way. I mean as the opposite of progressive. It's retarded. So that's the that's the history of transhumanism. But it also is kind of the modern day of transhumanism, which we'll unpack a little bit more in a few minutes. But first let's talk about Ray Kurzweil.
1: Ray Kurzweil.
4: Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil. Kurzweil. Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. I have with me Ray Kurzweil.
5: Welcome to the closing session of the Council on Foreign Relations 22nd Annual Term Member Conference with Ray Kurzweil.
0: Because he's probably the most foremost advocate of the transhumanism movement today. And he has a very positive view of technology. He's very into the possibilities of human enhancements, including cognitive abilities, like with a brain-computer interface. He is kind of like the daddy of transhumanism in popular discourse today because he
1: popularized the concept of the technological singularity oh boy you will not stop hearing about the singularity for years to come because there's plenty of doomsayers who say it's going to lead to destruction you know, basically there's like the paperclip theory that if you have an ai that makes paper clips out of everything it will make a paperclip out of a human and so you'll just have all these Machines running amok.
5: Ray Kurzweil's prediction for artificial superintelligence uh, is twenty twenty nine. He's not far wrong. I don't know, what, what, what do we do about AI? Like, what do we do about artificial general intelligence? Uh, if, if we have digital superintelligence that's you know just much smarter than any human, how do we mitigate that risk? Um, at a, at a species level, how do we mitigate that risk?
0: So Ray Kurzweil popularized the concept of the, of the singularity, which is this hypothetical point in the future where technological growth and the power of
1: technology becomes uncontrollable and irreversible. And this guy's a computer scientist, so he's charting the development of computer science, and he's like, computers are just getting exponentially better, so eventually they'll just be conscious. The
0: singularity is basically... Or I should say, the fear of the singularity is pretty much the uh, school of thought that is the driving force of transhumanism technology today. And we've heard this, you know, many times from Elon Musk. Mm-hmm.
5: It's intended to address the or the risk, the existential risk associated with uh, digital superintelligence. Um, like we will not be able to f- be smarter than a, a, a digital supercomputer. Um, so therefore, if you cannot beat them, join them. It's important that Neuralink solve this problem sooner rather than later, because the point at which we have digital superintelligence that's when we pass the singularity. So we want to have a human brain interface before the singularity, or at least not long after it, to minimize existential risk for humanity and consciousness as we know it.
0: I feel like fear-mongering about the singularity is like the new fear-mongering about terrorism in the united states like at least domestically like we used to get told like you got to have all these draconian forms of surveillance because it's the only way the government's gonna be able to stop terrorism yeah now we're getting told we have to merge with ai because if you don't ai will outpace us like shut up but we have kurtzwell to thank for that he is the one sounding the alarm about the coming singularity oh it was supposed to be this year or twenty twenty three. Now it's twenty forty five. I mean, this is the big. Yeah, he updated.
1: it. <laughs> he's like, actually, twenty twenty three rolled around, and he's like, actually. Yeah. I mean, this
0: is the big critique of Ray. People say that he makes his predictions like so vague that they actually there's always loopholes, and they can never actually be proven wrong. In in an article of uh, IEEE Spectrum, the author criticized Kurtzweil similarly in 2010, saying, Therein lie the frustrations of Kurzweil's brand of tech punditry. On close examination, his clearest and most successful predictions often lack originality or profundity, and most of his predictions come with so many loopholes that they border on the unfalsifiable. Um, So he's a big believer in biotechnology. Um, He wants to integrate technology with the human body. He wants to, quote-unquote, enhance our biological limitations right he sees human bodies as something for us to overcome very much like what's his name Huxley yeah um but the other thing you (laughs) need to know about him is that he's obsessed with digital immortality his dad died when he was very young seems like it's really driven him to this point where he's obsessed with the idea that you know we can stop that from ever happening again like I could get my dad back you know, mm-hmm. I could upload you know his writings and his and his consciousness somewhere, and I could hang out with my dad um so yeah, I don't want to make fun of him too much, even though I hate him, and he sucks um and he sucks ass
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah he so the other thing about him is like he keeps on saying his father's a holocaust survivor, his father left Austria in nineteen thirty eight there was no Holocaust, there was no pogrom there. Um, he just saw the cues and left he's just pretty like early, a- was pretty lucky and so he valor. was a Holocaust he's what we call a Holocaust dodger. <laughs> <laughs> he did not want to be enlisted, yeah. So no survivor valor for him, I would say. And yeah, he was obsessed with bringing this like replica back of his dad um, and creating this avatar from letters and other writings by his dad. And yeah, I guess just to have his dad back and being like, I thought you were going to go to law school. What is this? Who we take those fucking watercolor suspenders off. What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay um the coolest thing that ray ever did though was in middle school he made a computer program that listened to classical music found patterns in it and then made new music based on those patterns that it found this was in the 60s he's a, a an accomplished um computer scientist
1: he, he did a an lot inventor yeah
0: yeah he did a lot with speech recognition um now he's you know leadership at google Um, He became the director of Google's engineering in 2012. And yeah, he's basically known for all of these predictions. The most interesting one is the prediction about the singularity, of course, Um, where in his book titled The Singularity is Near, published in 2005, he made two really big predictions. One that by 2029, AI is going to surpass human intelligence and master the Turing test.
6: A key thing is 2029 when computers will pass the turing
1: test
0: um and then too that by 2045 humans will merge with the ai they've created and that is what he calls the singularity
1: yeah we do have to mention the turing test is basically can a computer fool you into you thinking that it's living and computers have already done computer programs have already been successful doing that in the 70s humans are really stupid stupid and easy to trick easily fooled so i mean there's there's talks about um revamping and uh, reinterpreting the turing test so that you would you would have like a computer scientist who's aware of what computers can and can't do but anyway that doesn't seem like it seems like a flawed test flawed framework it's just doesn't make sense because we don't really understand what consciousness is. Can it be computed? Um,
0: But also, on the other hand, people like Kurzweil and Elon Musk both say that if a human is fooled into thinking that this is actually artificial intelligence, then it may as well be artificial intelligence.
5: The thing is that that I think are really quite quite likely is that digital intelligence will be able to outthink us. Uh, in, in every way, and it will certainly be able to simulate what we consider consciousness. Uh, so, to, to a degree that you would not be able to tell the difference. And from the from the aspect of the scientific method, it's, it might as well be consciousness if we can simulate it perfectly. If you can't tell the difference, if you if, if you're if you're talking to a d- digital superintelligence and can't tell if that is a computer or a human, might as well might as well be human. These large language models now,
6: some people are convinced by it already. I mean, you can talk to it and have a conversation with it, and you can actually talk to it for hours. As we eliminate various problems of, of these large language models, uh, more and more people will accept that they're conscious. So when we get to 2029, 20, more, uh, I think a, a large fraction of, of people will believe that they're conscious.
0: Uh, Kurzweil, just to, if you haven't heard of him, just to illustrate the fact that he is renowned, received in 1999 the National Medal of Technology and Innovation, which is First
1: time I'm hearing of this medal.
0: (laughs) Well, it's the country's highest honor in technology, bitch. Okay. The host of a tech podcast. (laughs) We know it now. (laughs) Um, in 2002, Kurzweil was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Have you heard of that one? Sure he co-founded Singularity University, a non-accredited private institute whose stated mission is, quote, to educate, inspire, and empower leaders to apply exponential technologies to address humanity's grand challenges. Of course, Singularity University is funded in part by Google, He's gotten honored by three different U.S. presidents. Like this is he's a, he's very enmeshed in in the U.S. political establishment, if that makes sense. But then, of course, there are the critics that are like, this guy
1: does nothing but make bad predictions. When we talk about Kurtzweil, you have to realize that he, for very important interviews, will wear an oversized beret <laughs> and uh, <laughs> suspenders with watercolor sailboats on them. <laughs> he looks like he's a docent at a planetarium. Okay. Brilliant. The oversized berets be what guys. he looks like a community college art school teacher explaining how you don't eat the finger paints. <laughs> you know? I'm, try- I'm literally crying. <laughs> the oversized beret is what does it for me. did you not see this video of him before
0: he's worn those suspenders elsewhere so i actually the suspenders
1: you were familiar with but the beret (laughs) i'm a futurist futurist also not a real job i'm sorry i know i don't have a real job but (laughs) a podcaster not a real job either um (laughs)
0: But he, he has a real job. He's at Google. Like he runs a team at Google. Um, like you know those Gmail smart replies that came out in twenty seventeen. It starts writing your email response for you. That was his team. Um, his official title is principal researcher and AI visionary at Google. Which actually, you're
1: right. That does not sound like a real yeah. job.
0: But he looks so goofy here.
1: And then also like he kind of looks st- a little stoned. I like that. Gotta admit, um. So a fan Forbes,
0: of that. he's done like a lot of different waves of <laughs> predictions. Um, Forbes came out with a piece at one point saying that his predictions for 2009 were were mostly inaccurate, with seven failed predictions, four partially true predictions, and one correct one, which is basically a coin toss. Among his predictions that turned out to be wrong, we have the economy continuing to boom from the 1999.com era through 2009. A U.S. company having a market capitalization of more than $1 trillion by 2009. So that's something he predicted that didn't happen. A supercomputer achieving 20 petaflops, petaflops and cars that would drive themselves uh, using sensors all by 2009. So that was that was wrong. He's he's a man of many predictions and theories, but we're, we're focusing on, um, you know, the singularity one today. He talks about um, how humans are going to be a hybrid of biological and non-biological intelligence that will become increasingly dominated by its non-biological components.
6: Another step, then, is in the 2030s when we can actually connect our neocortex, which is where we do our thinking, to computers. So I believe that will happen in the 2030s. We will actually... Uh, we can connect our own brain to the cloud, um, so that's where we're headed. So you think that there will be a, a merger in the '30s, an right. increasing amount of merging between the either human brain and the AI brain. Exactly. You know, w- once we can amplify our brain with computers directly, which will happen in the 2030s, that's going to keep growing. That's another whole theme, which is exponential growth of computing power. By the time you get to 2045, we'll be able to multiply our intelligence many millions fold. And that's the singularity where we can't even imagine. Right. That's why we call it the singularity. The singularity in physics, something gets sucked into its singularity and you can't tell what's going on in there because no information can get out of it.
1: Kurzweil's idea is like, we'll just be like, a kind of slime that enters a exo, a computerized exoskeleton that will take care of all our biological needs. We won't have to worry about eating or sleeping or and we'll just be our best selves.
6: A lot of people just think computers come along and they compete with them. We can't really compete and that's the end of it. Uh, as opposed to them... Increasing our abilities. And if you look at most technology, it it increases our abilities. Uh, That's why we create technologies to enhance ourselves. Uh, And I believe we will be enhanced.
0: Basically, he makes the comparison um, with cloud computing. So just like a phone, the phone in your hand is more powerful because it's connected to the cloud, because it's connected to all these other networks, right? And because it it has access to all of the data that is hosted elsewhere, not just locally on the phone, in the same way, humans will be so much more powerful and knowledgeable and evolved if we can also connect to a network of other brains and computers. Because if you think about it, really, the technology of Neuralink, which at its core is linking a human with a machine, is the same technology that's needed to link a human brain with another human brain right because you're already making that connection to the machine so uh it it really opens up a lot of possibilities here's here, here's what he says quote we humans are going to start linking with each other and become a meta connection we will all be connected and omnipresent plugged into a global network that is connected to billions of people and filled with data mm, filled with Fill me with data daddy Fill me with data daddy um, no, this Curzwell is not the daddy. Robert Caleb is my daddy. Oh yeah. Um,
1: Getting them confused. Can you put the? Can you take his image off the screen? No. <laughs> Look at him. <laughs> like, He's like really feeling it.
6: To 2025.
0: Okay. These are the suspenders I saw. These are a different painted suspenders.
1: Um, He's this actually... that painted suspender market. <laughs> going.
0: This looks like actual acrylic paint on suspenders.
1: It looks like watercolor.
0: It looks like acrylic, but that's okay. But but
1: watercolor.
0: (laughs) I will die on this. (laughs) You fucking dumb cunt. Yes, I paint. It's way too pigmented.
1: Oh, maybe you're right. You can
0: see the thickness of it.
1: There's a there's like a Japanese watercolor that has more pigment in it.
0: That's not what this is, babe. Mm. I know the Japanese water. You're telling a Japanese person. You're I Japanese. have I have it in my room over there. I'm Japanese, Japanese when I want to be for the sake of our <laughs>
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, my mom's <sighs> ethnically Korean, but she was born and raised in Japan, and I've never been to Korea, and I've been to Japan mad times. So I can speak on the watercolor oh, situation. Shit. Okay, let's listen to, to the man in the undefined type of paint suspenders.
6: By the time we get to 2045, we'll be able to multiply our intelligence many millions fold, and it's very hard to imagine what that will be like. And that's the singularity where we can't even imagine. Right. That's why we call it the singularity. The singularity in physics, something gets sucked into its singularity, and you can't tell what's going on in there because Mm. no information can get out of it.
1: 2045, Yeah. (laughs) yeah w well, didn't you say 2023 buddy but yeah he's conflating intelligence with what a computer can do and it's just intelligence encompasses more than just computing and he talks about how impressed he is with like large language models and it's like really um i i guess there is really impressive work when you when you look at like how it's writing code or like finding new compounds and for medicine like that's really cool but the the talking and the information giving you have the hallucinations you have the fact that large language models they're just taking a copy of what they of patterns that they find on the internet and from different sources and mashing them together and and it's just making a copy and then those language models then make a copy of a copy to make their quote-unquote, intelligence. We're just dealing with something that is so just faded. I forgot who's, who said that it's like a Xerox copy. But yeah, he's become the singularity guy, so he can't ever disavow it. He That's his brand. But his academic work his is not... First of all, not in AI, really. He's accomplished in other fields and and very accomplished. He was very accomplished in uh, what was a speech-to-text technology.
0: Yeah, he was the principal inventor of the first CCD flatbed scanner the first font optical character recognition, the first print-to-speech reading machine for the blind, and the first large vocabulary speech recognition software that went on to the commercial market. So he is a sick inventor. He's good at that.
1: And this is what I think we're always going to run into. It's like a guy is good at one thing, then he thinks he's a wizard and Elon can solve Musk. All. yeah, yeah, exactly like Elon Musk, Elon Musk make it made a good bet. He was an investor. and now he's he looks around at everything else and he's just the guy at the party giving you unsolicited advice. You know, he's just like, oh, what do you do for a living?" And then explains your profession to you. I mean, I'm really just jealous of the confidence to write theories about a subject that you don't specialize in he's a theorist he's a theorist in these other fields when it comes to ai
0: i mean it's 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 us we have a podcast and we become experts in whatever topic for one week but i know the- hey guys we're reading
1: a lot of articles <laughs> and there's also this like- is definitely going to be the thumbnail for the po- <laughs> what him like yeah do you need a better view of him? I miss there he is. I missed him. It's, it looks like he's conjuring. Like he's like you want us to take it it looks like he's gonna read our tarot cards. I mean it's cute. It's it's cute. It's old man cute. He's the galaxy brain Mr. Rogers.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think we mentioned that his book is called The Singularity Is Near. By the way, his new book is called The Singularity Is Nearer. <laughs>
1: um on the other side of this debate you have uh people like jaron lanier love to hear about jared (laughs) transhumanist jared no he's an anti-transhumanist oh anti other side of the aisle
0: he's just like a, a big critic of he's interviewed a lot on mainstream media he's in like netflix documentaries and that kind of thing like he's 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 out there um and i have my issues with him he has bad politics he's he's not you know he doesn't have good like internationalist politics but whatever in in the field of ai he is an expert and he denies that the singularity is inevitable he says quote i don't think the technology is creating itself it's not an autonomous process he also says quote the reason to believe in human agency over technological determinism which is basically while, is that you can then have an economy where people earn their own way and invent their own lives If you structure society on not emphasizing human agency, it's the same thing operationally as denying people clout, dignity, and self-determination. To embrace the idea of the singularity would be a celebration of bad data and bad politics. Lanier wrote this thing called One Half a Manifesto. I have my issues with him on politics, but on tech, he could not only obviously run circles around me from a technical perspective, but his analysis is very good, right? And he, he objects to uh, this idea of cybernetic totalism, right? This idea that because the singularity is inevitable and unavoidable, we have to merge man with machine. He says, quote, the dogma I object to is composed of a set of interlocking beliefs and doesn't have generally accepted overarching name as yet, although sometimes I call it cybernetic totalism. It has the potential to transform human experience more powerful than any prior ideology, religion or political system ever has partly because it can be so pleasing to the mind at least initially but mostly because it gets a free ride on the overwhelmingly powerful technologies that happen to be created by people who are to a large degree true believers so basically lanier lanier whatever linear
1: linear oh is it i think it's linear linear Linear. Okay. I know a bunch of linears.
0: Anyway, in, in one half of Manifesto, he basically says that this is like a religion and it it's not scientific, it's a religion and he doesn't fuck with it. Okay, there's also a technical opposition to Kurzweil. Um, Theodore Modis says that not only can the singularity not happen, but he claims that the technological singularity and especially Kurzweil lacks scientific rigor. Kurzweil is alleged to make the logis- logistic function S function for an exponential function and to see a knee in an exponential function when in fact, there could be no such thing. I don't even understand this, but this is apparently the technical rebuttal to Kurzweil's like singularity.
1: Yeah. I'm not following that
0: shit. That at was all. for like, I don't know, one person in the audience.
1: <laughs> We're like, maybe you're out there. <laughs> you can't accuse us of not saying a formula <laughs> on our podcast we fucking said like a formula. I, the last time I said a formula, you also made fun of
0: me. Um, when we oh, yeah, really? Google search rank algorithm. Really? Why
1: did you do that?
0: <laughs> okay, anyway,
1: the important thing is, there's a reason to be skeptical of people like this is because they're directing investment. It's all about you know, the hype machine and open AI. And you know Google's AI but he's also the head of the department of Google that's like anti-aging or something and it's like you haven't figured out Botox buddy <laughs> either put the beret further down
0: yeah well the fear around the technological singularity is what's driving investment I think you're I think that's you're right if you believe that the you know the singularity is inevitable and technology is creating itself Then you have this kind of uh, nebulous idea of this potential future existential threat to focus on, of course, instead of the real material threats to human lives. Right. This is like what's that? why everything's so retarded, because like people like Elon Musk are like. I gotta do Neuralink because uh we're gonna have an AI that's smarter than a human. So uh how do we mitigate the inevitable takeover, which by the way is totally inevitable? Don't look into it; it's definitely inevitable. Well, we gotta merge man
1: with machine. There's always a the Chinese are doing it. Yeah, that's also don't do it. Already. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and this is what you know. This is why Henry Kissinger is obsessed with this too. And you know was it... <laughs> right what.
1: R.I.P, oh bitch. <laughs> He's gonna be advising the next three presidents until that crisis business goes. <laughs> yeah, because, <laughs> or I guess, yeah, his AI.
0: I mean, but of course, the, the little tiny nugget of truth within this um, sort of fear mongering about AI is that just like every other industry sector gets too big, like the banks,
1: oil companies, telecom firms, like mm-hmm. big tech is getting too big Yeah. And the, the, I mean, the most immediate threat right now is that all these large language models are so costly to run. They need these servers and there's an energy crisis. Like that's the soonest thing we're going to face. Either not enough energy, you know, all the harmful environmental effects of using too much energy um such as sea rise at davos recently sam altman was asked like what are we gonna do about all this processing power that you need he's like oh nuclear fusion and like that doesn't even exist yet so he's basically making it our problem like come up with a different energy source But anyway,
0: another one of the biggest critics of Kurzweil is Jürgen Habermas, which you may remember from our Palantir episode. He like made a very, very brief appearance.
1: Yeah, Jürgen Habermas. It was the the critical theory philosopher who, uh, what's his name, Alex Karp, said that he studied under when in fact there's no record of him um studying with this philosopher at all
0: yeah in the Palantir episode we basically talk about how Carp exaggerated his, his relationship with Habermas but um that's because Alex Carp wanted to come off as far left remember that was his whole mm-hmm. thing. like
1: I'm on the far left
0: by the way I'm on the far left by the way I'm a progressive
1: yeah I'm not running in the, the mo- one of the most evil information companies in America that's
0: yeah, just amassing that all this power and... by the CIA like no big deal but anyway Habermas is skeptical about transhumanist ideas that suggest these radical changes and enhancements or evolutions as as a uh, huxley would call them to human capacities through technology right. he's concerned with the potential consequences of transhumanist tech He's like actually like we need to question whether this pursuit um like the pursuit of enhancing human abilities through technology could lean to these ethical dilemmas and the erosion of moral values. He doesn't fuck with the transhumanist agenda. And if you focus <laughs> His on... His words. <laughs> quote, I don't fucks with three X's with that. But Habermas basically says that by focusing on these technological enhancements uh, and efficiency, we're reducing human individuals to a mere means to an end, right? We're not respecting... And recognizing, like, inherent value as human beings, it's all about, like, oh, what value can we provide, right? And he questions whether people are still going to be even capable of making autonomous decisions, like real human-driven decisions, if their cognitive and physical abilities are influenced and maybe even controlled by these technological interventions that are owned and operated by who the ruling class they're not Mm -hmm. we're not in a situation where where the workers own the means of production right we can't have this um idealized view of what transhumanism could be i've seen a lot of you know going to just to go off the rails again
1: um, let's go off the
0: rails (laughs) i've seen um marxists talk about how oh this is gonna help us like this is like the most communist thing you could ever think of and
1: reducing work yeah
0: great like maybe under communism it would be something great but it's just you can't pretend that we're under communism but anyway so that's Habermas Habermas is anti-transhumanism
1: but he did also say uh <laughs> solidarity with Israel is an indisputable principle for Germans
0: wait Jürgen?
1: uh yeah he is uh he said that in November fuck okay we're not quoting no, him anymore. we're d- <laughs> Hi Habermas. Um I have some other transhumanists I want to Ooh, let's go. Zoltan Istvan. This is my favorite which is like if your name Zoltan maybe you are predisposed. Right. To being uh, to taking sci-fi too oh, far. Um to the point where he created a political party called the Transhumanist Party yes and he ran for president in 2016. of what country? (laughs) of our country. the dudes from california went to columbia university the time he was at columbia he was arrested for dealing marijuana so a huge part of his platform was reparations for those affected by the drug war. This is my man. Actually, he was an on-camera reporter for National Geographic for a little while. So that's like, he he had a job talking about science. Definitely not a scientist. Anyway, so in 2014, um, when he was started running for president for 20, the 2016 election, the transhumanist party platform basically presented death as, you know, an affliction that we can overcome. And in when he was campaigning for president, he drove a bus shaped like a casket around the US and (laughs) in order to raise awareness for life extension, but I would, feel like i don't know that going through my town i'd be like oh <laughs> the opioid crisis right um <laughs> right police murder and any number of real issues any number yeah The i don't think yeah so it was called the immortality bus he also liked to brag about how you would drive the casket drunk which <laughs> it's like he was driving it i dr- love this guy yeah he he was driving the bus the casket bus let's show you the immortality bus
0: Hey, what does it say on the side
1: transhumanist With Zolt- transhumanist zoltan istfan so that he ran yeah.
0: the- in 2016
1: and i had never heard of him yeah on the transhumanist party platform oh. well, <laughs> but it sounds like he's might be gearing up for uh running on the libertarian ticket oh yeah in 2020 he did the libertarian party he was running for the nomination right in four years he'll just be in the republican party yeah how old is he born 50. okay i hope we give it to him (laughs) um also pioneered there's so much about this guy he pioneered the sport of volcano boarding which is snowboarding down a mountain of ash but potentially getting caught in volcanic rocks because climate change is going to get rid of snow or it's (laughs) that i didn't even think of that but i guess so huh yeah be prepared for all the ash we'll have to deal with from all the fires you know he ran in in
0: 2016 uh, in 2017, just as another example of how transhumanism is is becoming more and more prevalent today. In 2017, uh, Penn State University Press, in cooperation with the philosopher Stefan Lorenz Sorgner and Stephen, Stephen Lorenz Sorgner, in, in cooperation with a philosopher.
1: <laughs> she just gave up on the third time.
0: Established the Journal of Post-Human Studies. This is the first academic journal explicitly dedicated to the post-human with a goal of clarifying the notions of transhumanism and post-humanism, as well as comparing and contrasting both. So I don't know, subscribe, I guess, if someone can buy us a subscription. We totally love that. Um, I would like to, uh, bring it back to bring it back, bring it back. The singularity, though, which for a long time, Elon Musk has been afraid, or at least he says this, who, whether he actually believes this or this is part of the marketing is, you know, up for debate. Right. But he is apparently very concerned with the creation of an intelligence machine, intelligent machine that's better than a human. And, and this is why he supports and now is really driving uh, the research to merge human intelligence with artificial intelligence again. The fear of the singularity is what justifies all of this investment into the merging of man with machine. The whole inevitability of artificial intelligence is marketing for the transhumanist tech. You can very easily, you know, compare the buildup towards the singularity with the, like, Judeo-Christian, like, end-of-the-world stuff. Yeah. And of course there's the obvious logical contradiction in this reasoning which is like oh well we're developing ai to limit the advancement of its development but you know that's how it's religious right it's not logical it's it's like all of this apocalyptic thinking and like you know there's so many parallels we can draw with the fear of the rapture like I, i don't really i'm not very well versed in like christian theology or anything like that but i know enough to know that the rapture is also a hypothetical point in which,
1: you know, every... Yeah, the world ends, Jesus comes back, and it's all okay.
0: The world as we know it ends, yeah. Well, it's like the same kind of apocalyptic thinking and concept of transcendence, right? Where with Jesus, it's him coming back, and then everything's good. But
1: the Jews will get him again.
0: (laughs) In, In... in the form of religious thinking that is the singularity fear, technological advancements are are seen as the way of transcendence, the way that we can escape the inevitability. And I think there's something we need to mention here, which is that, you know, when people have challenging material conditions, they are vulnerable and yeah, they're more vulnerable to be herded towards religious or apocalyptic thinking as a form of escapism, Right there's some sort of comfort that you can find in the promise of this like radical transformation in the future.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always been an attractive ideology. There's millenarianism during the middle ages you have. um, Yeah. The apocalypse. It's just, it's very um, alluring kind of thought process because you see everything as a sign of the end.
0: Yeah. And, and it helps you escape from your, current reality which for many is alienation, low wages, feeling like they're not represented politically, no meaningful regulation, you know, controlling corporate forces, like the regular person like feels
1: pretty powerless, you know. I'm the regular person, you're not. <laughs> I feel powerless. I'm the one applying on LinkedIn for nothing. <laughs> You have a business yeah but i still meet get my
0: needs met through working not through the oh my god michelle is a landlord i wish wait I, mean, I don't wish i just wish i didn't have to work well you
1: wish you could be working on this because
0: this is like a whole nother full-time job frankly and i love yeah. it it's very rewarding yeah but you know i did read a 60-page manifesto by julian huxley i don't think you should have done that <laughs> anyway just to wrap up this point on the singularity and elon musk using it as the uh, justification for Neuralink. It's basically like the ultimate false flag. We have to do this because this other horrible thing is inevitable, but actually that horrible thing, there's really no proof for it. The only
1: proof that we have for it is based like in religious thinking. It's not based in... Yeah, it's the guy with the oversized beret. It's Galaxy Brain, Mr. Rogers. And also... When you're talking about something like
0: Neuralink and brain-computer interfaces as a whole and merging man with machine as a whole, you do want to consider um, the eugenicist roots of this kind of thinking. There's a question of ableism here too, right? Mm -hmm. Where we have a society that is violent and discriminatory towards people who are differently abled. To say, you know, these traits are are bad and they need to be fixed is kind of a
1: slippery slope i feel like a paraplegic person who's getting the chip or maybe synchrons chip maybe not neuralings chip is happy to have a defect change
0: well the term slippery slope means that you start somewhere where things are
1: fine and then you slip down to where it's not yeah well the the problem is that they slipped in the first place and got a spinal cord injury so they can't walk (laughs) Yeah, I don't see the ableism debate.
0: Well, the debate will basically goes like this. There's the pro-transhumanist point of view, which is like, hey, eugenics doesn't have to be about killing people with disabilities or illnesses. It's just about stopping them from having the disabilities or illnesses, right? It doesn't have to be Nazi Germany. It could just be about eliminating suffering, misery, eliminating these irreversible and fatal diseases. Like, you can't really be against that. Very uncontroversial, right? And then on the other side, you have, well, people can draw the line in different places. And then the question becomes, who are those people who are drawing the lines? To whom do we defer to kind of figure this out, right? Do we defer to Elon Musk, whose I don't know, satellite internet company is an arm of the national security state? Mm -hmm. Do we feel protected by the head of the FDA, an agency which, when it matters, tends to put private interests and corporate profits above public health and safety and, you know, general public good? is it people like Eric Schmidt and Henry Kissinger again RIP who collabed on a book right before he uh, died about like AI's role in government. They basically want to outsource, um, fucking government responsibility to this artificial
1: intelligence. That is, yeah, that it was a huge, uh, point that Caleb was making in that talk that he was very eager to have decision-making be performed by AI and um outsourced
0: we're giving up the idea of like human autonomy in favor of this technology but it's 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 a fake paradigm because you know people like eric schmidt and henry kissinger who want to or wanted r.i.p to uh, enhance the role of ai
1: in these government functions what is their agenda but because we see it as a machine we don't think of it having bias but it ultimately is it is built by humans who have biases
0: biases sure but also agendas and profit motives yeah it's just interesting like how this fear of the technological singularity has driven uh, so much of the investment and the exploration of these transhumanist technologies
1: and if you go back to brave new world you know the younger huxley's book he's trying to paint the picture of what happens when this kind of information is centralized and the capabilities of this technology are in in the hands of few and he shows he you know in this dystopia there's you know psychological manipulation and people people's thoughts are controlled on that note on that note
0: Thanks for exploring the fear surrounding the technological singularity with
1: us. I'm sure the singularity will come up again. It's just like in the ether so much and it comes up. So yeah, Ray Kurzweil is, what is he saying now, 2045? He's like, singularity will be here. Computers will be sentient. And it's, you're just making shit up. This is, this guy is Nostradamus. Why do people respect his predictions? I guess he's predicted other things, but I mean it's not that hard to like chart the progress of computer science. I'm I just have a lot of doubt. Well, that was Transhumanism. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Cargo Co. I'm Naomi Caravani. And I'm Michelle Greenstein.
0: See you next time. Bye-bye.
5: I mean, I've learned that the brain is really squishy, <laughs> like way squishier than you think. It's not like uh, you know, cauliflower or broccoli or something like that. It's more like water balloon, uh, and then it's moving in your skull like a lot. <laughs> so, you've got a squishy water balloon in a coconut.